The following program is a PBS Wisconsin original production. Wisconsin cities plead for more state funding. Despite the current cold, winters in the state become some of the fastest warming in the country. And for some Wisconsinites, aid for Ukraine remains an emergency. I'm Frederica Freiberg. Tonight on Here and Now, Racine Mayor Corey Mason on the dire need for more local funding. We speak to one Wisconsinite whose work has raised tens of millions of dollars worth of aid for Ukraine. And the next in our series of interviews with the state Supreme Court candidates with Judge Everett Mitchell. It's Here and Now for February 3rd. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin. City mayors across the state are imploring legislative leaders to allocate more funding for municipalities known as shared revenue in the upcoming state budget. Racine Mayor Corey Mason says every year he's told there's no money. But in a year when Wisconsin's bank account is showing an historic $7.1 billion surplus, he now says now is the time to fund police and essential services. The mayor joins us now, and thanks very much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we expect uh, that when he rolls out his two-year budget, Governor Tony Evers will include his proposal of sending 20 percent of the state's sales tax uh, back to local communities for shared revenue. When you heard uh, that proposal that he made in, in the State of the State address, what was your reaction? I mean, overwhelmingly positive. I mean, really, the, the governor's shown some real leadership here. Just to put it in context for people, though, I mean, we've had the state's share of funds to local services, it's been frozen for, for more than a decade. And so for the city of Racine, uh, in real dollar terms, we get less than we did more than a decade ago. And that makes it very difficult to maintain services when costs continue to rise. So the fact that the governor is committing uh, that, that kind of a funding source, both in terms of its increase, but then also its sustainable growth in the future, obviously uh, myself and mayors all over this, this day were obviously very excited to hear about that. Have you done the math on that uh, for the city of Racine? Do you have any kind of rough numbers what that might mean or could yeah, mean? Yeah, so that, that, right, that's that's where the, the details will really um, come out because obviously the, um, there's different levels of government have different ideas about how that increase would be, but it'd be a, about an additional half, half billion dollars that would go back to local governments. How that's distributed through cities, villages, towns, and counties, is an ongoing conversation. Uh, what, what we do know, though, is you know, a generation ago, about 12% of the state budget went back to local governments. Now it's at 5%. So, so we know we need a reinvestment in local communities if we're going to keep our neighborhoods safe. Because paint the picture for us. What has that meant in terms of local services? Well, it, there's real stress on, on local services. Our ability to maintain services and, and frankly, to give police and firefighters the raises they deserve becomes harder and harder. You know, as healthcare costs might go up 10, 15% a year, if your revenues remain very flat, it's just a matter of time uh, before there's a real tension between giving workers the raises they deserve so that we can recruit and retain them into these professions uh, and maintain vital public services if you're still dealing with budgets that are at levels from 10, 12, 15 years ago. 
Uh, also, there are the levy limits, as you as you well know, and the only way uh, under those legislatively imposed uh, limits is to to get more tax dollars, is to go to a referendum. But Racine last year had a referendum for two million dollars to hire eleven new police officers, and it failed. Uh, so, yeah. are you able at this time uh, to preserve public safety uh, under that scenario? I mean, that is the real tension. We're, we're in negotiations right now, but certainly the, the raises we have on the table exceed our ability to maintain those funds in the future. We have to put real offers on the table, though, because we need to maintain a police force and, uh, and an EMS and firefighting force. So, it, it's at a crisis point for communities like Racine. Um, you know, we know that there were dozens of public safety referendums throughout the state last November. 85% of them passed. Unfortunately, ours was one that, that didn't. And so, you know, we, those are really our two options, either going to referendum or getting the state to reinvest in its commitment to funding local services. But everybody agreed last year that funding the police was a priority. Everyone agreed about that. And so this is the opportunity for the legislature and the governor to come together uh, and make good on that commitment that the governor has already laid out before us. Speaking of that, having served uh, in the legislature yourself, what is your expectation about how the Republican majority will respond to the Evers proposal to share 20% of the state sales tax? Well, I, I have said to some people who are like, this is great, we're going to get a huge increase. And I've warned people, like, the increase doesn't come until the legislature weighs in and actually passes it in the biennial budget. And I will say, as somebody who was in the legislature for a long time, might have been more skeptical in other years, but I do know in conversations that we've had with other communications that the legislature is very much having conversations about this model, about the 20% sales tax going. So if, if both the governor and the legislature agree roughly on the framework and what they need to do is negotiate what the details are, I feel more optimistic about funding shared revenue this year than I have in a long time. As mayor of a major city, what is your message now um, to budget writers at the state capitol? So if you want to have safe and healthy communities, you have to invest in law enforcement and you have to invest in public safety. They know that. Um, and so, you know, the city of Racine and communities all over the state need the resources and we need the state to, to make good on its commitment to fill its responsibility to fund local services. And I, I think at the end of the day, everybody agrees to that. And I'm just really hoping that with this new framework laid out by the governor under his leadership, that the legislature will come in and find a model that we can all agree on. But we are at a point where they, the legislature can't kick this can down the road any further. It's getting to the place where providing basic services like police and fire is becoming harder and harder for communities like mine and many others all over the state. Mayor Corey Mason, thanks very much. Thank you. You can watch the governor's upcoming state budget address on Wednesday, February 15, at 7 p.m. It's live from the state capitol on PBS Wisconsin and on Wisconsin Public Radio. Also on the eastern side of the state, temperatures outside might be freezing. But for two Wisconsin cities, the average winter temperature has increased more than almost anywhere else in the United States. Nathan Denzine has more. Milwaukee and Green Bay have seen average winter temperatures increase by 6.1 degrees and 5.7 degrees since 1970. That makes Milwaukee the second fastest warming city in the country and Green Bay the fifth. Part of the climbing temperature comes from Lake Michigan, 
which has seen a decline in ice coverage over the last 50 years. However, Wisconsin's coast isn't the only area with quickly rising thermometers. The northwest part of the state has seen warmer winter days than southern Wisconsin, a trend that is expected to continue for decades. With rising temperatures come significant ecological concerns. Without an ice buffer on Lake Michigan, winter waves are more likely to crash into shorelines, speeding up erosion and damaging infrastructure. Turning to the middle of the state, warmer weather will eventually mean less snow, which will harm wildlife like the snowshoe hare, which relies on snow for camouflage. Without drastic change, experts say Wisconsin will warm by up to eight degrees this century. For Here and Now, I'm Nathan Denzine. Shifting to world news, even though Ukraine is no longer front of mind for many Americans, the war from Russia's invasion nearly one year ago continues to ravage the country's people. Some Wisconsinites refuse to let up in their efforts to send aid overseas, including our next guest, who has sent more than $25 million worth of goods to the Ukrainian people. Valentina Papsyakova of Fairchild joins us now, and thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. So do you find that the war is no longer kind of top of mind for Americans? You know, in many ways that the death is no longer a news to so many people. We're just so used to, to hear about um, dying, you know, um, people who are dying in different countries, children are dying, born and unborn, and it is just not a news anymore. Uh, however, I see that uh, there's, um, at the same time, a very big awakening in the people. Just that generally what's happening is touching so deeply, so deeply with the question, which world do we want to see? No, where are we going with all of the, that is uh, in front of us? What will be the future? And I think at the beginning, of course, it was just a, a big um, shock. It was a lot of humanitarian effort is being given to, to Ukraine just from uh, local organizations or big organizations and generally United States of America have helped so much. And um, yes, it is true at this point, a little bit, we are shifting, you know, to the, mm, I would say the, the there's a, um, a contrast, right? Um, people wanted to be done, wanted to be finished as soon as possible. And, and yet, it just goes on. And right now we all feel in Ukraine, we feel very deep, um, let's say, um, focus. We will, we will go on until the war is going to be over, until it's going to be a victory, no matter what anybody think. Yeah. <laughs> what are you hearing from people in Ukraine about the conditions now? Uh, conditions are right now uh, quite severe. It's winter, right? And our country is living only on 30% um, energy supply. You know, some some parts of Kiev, for example, our capital uh, is struggling very much right now with um, a heating and electricity. Uh, every city have a particular schedule, basically, when they can have electricity. So which means that you are only limited to a certain time to prepare your food. Um, and imagine if you have elder people who are bedridden or children, very small, young babies, you know, um, this is very uh, difficult, very difficult, very hard right now. Now, your organization, uh, Chalice of Mercy, sends millions of pounds of donated goods, um, everything from clothes and food to blankets. 
but it seems very importantly medical supplies. Uh, and, and, and these are in the tens of millions of dollars worth of goods, as we've pointed out, that you're sending. How are these medical supplies being used? Um, so once we ship everything to Ukraine and we work out of the warehouse here in Twin Cities, I have a very um, big group of volunteers, uh, Ukrainian people who are immigrants a uh, long time ago or those that came uh, through the program u for u and they have a very great desire, of course, to participate in any way, so that gives them opportunity. Uh, so once everything is packed and a very big pallet, um, we send this to New Jersey, to a, a great company that we work with, and then, um, then it's shipped to Warsaw, and from Warsaw transferred to Lviv, and from Lviv to Zaporizhia city, that's the city I'm from. I am a citizen of United States, but I was, um, uh, immigrated to United States 21 years ago, and Chalice of Mercy exists for 15 years of, of my American life, so it's very big. So basically, once it's been our, uh, in Zaporizhia, uh, we have a warehouse that is ours, and um, a team of volunteers that uh, we receive requests from the medical teams and hospitals and trench hospitals, mobile clinics that save lives immediately, right? on the spot right there. An amount of wounded people or soldiers is so vast. Um, sometimes just a small clinic receives about 100 wounded soldiers a day, and it's gonna be a very severe surgeries, serious, serious matters. So we um, collect everything that is requested, and then either we go right there, right to the front lines and bring these medical supplies, or they come and get it from the warehouse that we um, di distributed this from, yeah. Why do you work so tirelessly to do this? Uh, <laughs> it's my country. It's uh, the, my heart is absolutely co-suffering with my people. Um, it is uh, heartbreaking to see what um, Ukraine is going through. It's a very, very um, happy, uh, country, happy people, uh, people that are hardworking, we just desire to have our own, um, to continue our future uh, without having this communistic, socialistic um, ideologies. And, and that's so much in my heart because I grew up um, in the time when the Soviet Union fell and there was a still in the hearts of people kind of, let's say, it's a very good, good thing. You know, it's just something that we live the way how we lived. And now there is no doubt anymore because Ukraine, and let me put it this way, that Ukraine always have been a subject of um, uh, for for Russia because this war is not only 12 months now, almost anniversary, right? Very soon is going to be anniversary of one year. and But before that is nine years. So partial invasion happened nine years, right? But before that is 100 years, which started from Lenin, and then Stalin, uh, the man-made famine, and then all the revolution, and out of the 32 million people, 10 million people died just because of starvation. So we always have been a focus because we would not submit to the Russian imperialism, right? And therefore, it is so much within me, and it touches me that to help my country to break through uh, from that silk thread which with which we have been tied to the um, Red Dragon's Tale. <laughs> we leave it there. Uh, thank you for your work. Uh, Valentina Pasyakova, thank you.
Thank you. Thank you. It is February, and more and more people around the state and country are realizing the importance of Wisconsin's Supreme Court race this spring. There are four candidates running, and the primary election on February 21st will determine which two advance to the general election in April. Here and now, senior political reporter Zach Schultz continues our series of interviews with the candidates, this week with Everett Mitchell, a Dane County Circuit Court judge. Give me a sense of your judicial philosophy, if it can be boiled down. Well, I think for the most part, my judicial philosophy is kind of rooted in two pieces. One, it is an understanding of a living document so that the way we view the Constitution really is about making sure that we look at it to expand and cover the current issues that we do and that the current issues that we will encounter as a future generation. And I think our Constitution was written to be able to give us the flexibility to be able to expand that. But if there are times when I think you need to have like what I call a bifocal approach, where you need to be able to understand the original intent of the Constitution, but don't let that original intent stop you from being able to expand it to include some of the things that are important for our state moving forward. And it's that living Constitution perspective as a judge that allows for you know flexibility when making decisions that impact everyday Wisconsinites. When uh, a strict constructionist or a constitutional originalist will hear that, they'll say, well, that allows you to bring your politics. And that allows you to read into the Constitution what you want to. How do you respond to that? I'll say that is not, that's really not given. I mean, we have amendments for a reason. I didn't make up amendments. We have a whole bunch of amendments that allowed for them to expand the kinds of things that our Constitution did not envision. It didn't envision women voting. It did not envision black people who were enslaved being free. It did not envision uh, access to certain voting rights. It didn't envision all those things. So then if we only reflected on the strict constitutionalism, it's almost as though you're going to disregard all those other amendments that have allowed for our communities to evolve and continue to meet the needs where we see people meet. So it's not disregarding. It is actually embracing what the spirit of the Constitution was meant. And that's why we were able to have all those amendments to, to give access to things that the original intent and original framers did not uh, give access to. Justice Lewis Butler was the first African-American man to serve in the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And when he ran for re-election, he faced one of the most racist campaigns we've ever seen launched against justice. I would what the first. What have you learned from him and what preparing for this race for you? Well, one, I, I think I've spent a lot of time thinking about, well, first of all, he's endorsed me. So I listened to him. I learned from him. I, I talked to him about what things he would have done differently at that time. And really, as a judicial career, I spent a lot of time investing in the things that make hearts matter. You know, making sure that we're telling, clear about our messaging with our young people, ensuring that we are, you know, focused on the right messaging in communities, and then being transparent with people. Because, you know, having conversations about race, having conversations about the things that really do incarcerate the minds and imaginations of so many different people who have been affected by racist cultures really allows for me then to be able to have those conversations. And I think Justice Butler at that time, you know, he was getting hit with something that nobody had ever been done before, the darkening of skin, the, the tones. And so I've had great conversations with helping, you know, many, many members of our community for years, really helping them understand that all of us have been programmed with this super predator myth. And anytime they want to scare majority white individuals in our communities, all they do is darken skin, play some undertones, and it sends people back to the 80s and 90s when they were programmed every night to think about young black men as dangerous. And it sits in our subconscious. So for me, it's explaining to people, you have a choice. You don't have to continue to let that ruin your subconscious, or you can listen to who people are 
and not let TV ads scare you into believing that the person can't represent your, your particular interests. When you compare what Justice Butler went through to what we saw last year in the U.S. Senate race with Mandela Barnes, has there been a change? And what have you? What can you learn from that race just last year? Again, I think you go back to that same, you know, same perception, right? This idea, what makes you dangerous, what makes you afraid, and people will make things up in order to create that. It's really up to Wisconsinites and all people, really, to say, you know, we're not going to allow these kinds of images to deter us from understanding who people are, listening to their ideas, listening to their concerns, and making our decisions based on that. I think we've learned a lot from that. I think, uh, you know, watching the Mandela race is a reminder that these attacks are still out there. But I also say the same thing about Wisconsin. We elected Obama twice. And so this narrative can be broken because we broke it twice. And we broke it to elect, you know, our first you know, African-American president uh, and Wisconsin was the ones who gave him that victory twice. So, yes, we have that history, but we also have a history of being progressive on ideas and using character as opposed to color to define who individuals are. What do you think of the other candidates in this race? Are you running against them in the primary? Are you trying to distinguish yourself as, you know, one of the two so-called liberals versus two conservatives? I think what defines me differently is that we all going to have our values that make difference, right? You former prosecutors, elected as judges, you know, committed to the you know rule of law. What differentiates me between them is my leadership off both on the bench and off the bench. You know, rather using my voice and my power of the black robe to, you know, take handcuffs off of children to make it more fair or, you know, the rules to CCAP so that we can remove CCAP and move the remove, you know, people who've been charged and been dismissed or evictions that have been dismissed. In fact, I just found out that UW Law School created an app that allows for people to more easily uh, get those charges that they've been found out guilty of or those evictions off of their CCAP record even easier. So now people are actually having easy access. But if I had never made that motion and fought for that then, we wouldn't be these many years later being able to give relief to so many Wisconsinites. So it's those kind of actions and those kind of values that really differentiate uh, me from the rest of the field of individuals who are there because I'm really trying to make sure that the system is fair and none of this stuff about talking about I'm going to be fair because it's not fair. And there's a whole bunch of inequality built into the system. But it's our job as judges to ensure that those who come before us do receive due process in a fair and balanced way. And that we're not just simply repeating or redoing the system that sometimes can oppress and hurt those that are there in front of us. One of the phrases that gets tossed around a lot is the judicial activism. What does that mean to you? Does it have a meaning that you think most people can agree on? I think it just basically means that judges are involving themselves in creating legislation from the bench, uh, that they are not just following the you know rule of law, but they're actually taking a more proactive stance in their rulings to uh, impact uh, decisions that are being made. So, you know, a, a, you know an example of a judicial activism <clears throat> in, some in some ways is the, you know, the role decision, the overturning a role, because in many ways they were asking for and doing something that the world wasn't really asking for. It was a conservative group that's an act of what I thought was an act of conservative activism. So judicial activism really is that, is, you know, legislation in creating legislation from your decision, which is kind of interesting because in many ways, if anybody's ever been a circuit court judge, you're always asked to make decisions for which there are no answers, both in statute or case law. And so you have to be active, you know, in creating fairness. You have to be active in creating just outcomes for people. You have to be active in the community you know, to make reforms, to make our community better. 
And so, you know, as in many ways, it's a political term that's meant to distract us away from the roles that judges really, everyday judges really do, because they're not, it's not always defined clearly what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to rule and make these decisions. This is going to be one of the most uh, highly anticipated Supreme Court elections in the state's history. Are you getting that sense from people you're talking to that they understand the magnitude, the fact that there are a lot of people outside of Wisconsin paying attention to the significance of this race? I think they are. I think, uh, but you got to understand a lot of Wisconsinites, you know, are still struggling with inflation, you know, jobs and joblessness and rents that are skyrocketing. I mean, how much it costs to get a, a carton of eggs now? I mean, it used to be go to Quick Trip and you'd be able to get something for 99 cents. Those days are gone. So I think the everyday struggles that a lot of Wisconsinites are facing, that's what I've heard when I travel throughout the state, is really sucking up that energy. And I think as we kind of turn more toward February, it'll give us more ability for people to say, okay, well, how does this matter to me? How How is that? I think if a campaign is effective, and I think we've been effective in many different places, helping people understand that court systems have a direct impact on your life. How does it impact you? Well, you felt that in November with Jerry Manning. How does it impact you? You feel it with incarceration and the impact of incarceration has on minority communities. How does it impact you? Well, the Supreme Court is reviewing ICWA, Indian Child Welfare Act, and its potential impact on our Native Indigenous communities. Translating the need for having people who understand the world of issues that so many Wisconsinites feel is going to be important to getting people to understand why this race is important and significant. Next week on our program, we speak with Supreme Court candidate Judge Jennifer Doro. You can see all of our interviews with the four candidates on our news page. And for more on this and other issues facing Wisconsin, visit our website at pbswisconsin.org and then click on the News tab. That's our program for tonight. I'm Frederica Freiberg. Have a good weekend. for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin.